1: Welcome to Murder Mile. Today, I'm standing on Gloucester Avenue, near Regent's Park, NW1. One street northeast of the bloody killing by the grieving elephant keeper. Four doors down from the first possible victim of the blackout ripper. One street northwest of the posed body of Gladys Renee Hanrahan. And as an unnervingly similar case, in almost that same place, another body would be found. Coming soon to Murder Mile. Regent's Park is a lovely place to rest, relax and read a book. Or at least, it should be. Only swarms of piss-poor parents always unleash their shitting little seeds of Satan onto this tranquil idyll, As their over-sugared sex screams, I want, I want, wah! As it attempts to stamp to death the park's wildlife population, like a veritable pole pot of pigeons. And should anyone dare to chastise their sprog, through a 3pm haze of Valium and Vodka, Their parent always says, I'll leave him. He's just having fun. Brats. They cry, they crap. And if he bought one in a shop, thinking it's faulty, you'd take it back. For the first four years of a child's life, when its personality is forming, it spends most of its time with its parent, listening and learning. If a child turns out polite, kind and decent, the parent has every right to proclaim Oh yes, it's all down to good parenting, you see. as they've done the hard work. And yet should their child, who was born a blank canvas onto which the parent's morals are projected, should their little angel spawn from a devil in a diaper to a schoolyard starling? Too often, Its parent will blame sugar, video games or music, the bogeymen of each era. Good parents raise good children. But do they? I am going to tell you a story about a spoiled little brat, a young lad called Alan who was born healthy, raised well, and living a nice life with good parents and a decent family. He had no reason to turn bad. But burdened with a sense of privilege, self-entitlement and arrogance, he had become so fixated on doing what he wanted, that he would murder a woman in his way. My name is Michael. I am your tour guide. This is Murder Mile. Episode 193. A spoiled brat. Parenting is unlike any other job. To do it, you don't need a license, qualifications, or training. Many parents are thrown in at the deep end with no knowledge of whether they will sink or swim. And although Most get it right, some get it wrong, and for a few, a little mistake can turn into tragedy. The morning of Saturday, the 22nd of June 1935, had succeeded a surprisingly sticky night, as a mini heat wave had gripped the city. At a little after 7am, the residents of 19 Gloucester Road, or Gloucester Avenue as it was later renamed, began to slowly stir from their interrupted slumber after a rough night's sleep. As a sandstone terraced house on a quiet street, 19 Gloucester Road was a nice place to live. Split into flats... John Moody, a stage manager, had the basement. An artist called Gillian Payne had the first. And Dorothy Riley, a single woman of independent means, owned the second and third floors to the top. At 7.30am, in the master bedroom on the third floor, 20-year-old Maxine Gann awoke and headed to the kitchen to make her still sleepy mother a cup of tea, as they were house-sitting for Miss Riley. As a slim, pretty brunette, who the young men flocked to with big grins and bulging pants, although she dreamed of meeting Mr. Wright, as Maxine was still too naive to bag a keeper, she lived in Shepherd's Bush with her dad Stanley and her short but formidable mother. 63-year-old Louise Gann. With her mother snoring, Maxine put a up by the bed and headed down to Miss Riley's bedroom. Being decorated in all manner of frippery, like laced oilies, delicate trinkets, silver jewellery and a slew of porcelain oddments, with far too many shape-like cats. Her boyfriend, 28-year-old Alan Grierson, looks silly sleeping amongst this sea of old ladies' finery. But no matter what, she would always love him. Popping on his dark horn-rimmed glasses to absorb her beauty, in a well-mannered voice, Alan cooed, Good morning, morning, Mickey, my my sweet. And as the two pressed lips, both their cheeks flushed in tandem. Being so deeply smitten after four months together. Just four months from this point, Alan and Maxine would be days away from marrying. As this young loving couple prepared for a lifetime together. At 8am, over a cooked breakfast. The two savoured this time together. In a posh flat, surrounded by all the mod cons. It was a mirror of how their future could be. And with Maxine in a shop assistant's uniform. And Alan in a smart blue suit, black shoes and a bright red tie. As a salesman... For a prestigious car firm on Great Portland Street, it would be a lot of hard graft, but it would be worth it in the end. At 8.30am, as Mother slept soundly, Maxine left 19 Gloucester Road. having agreed to meet Alan later, to take her on a romantic trip to the seaside town of Torquay. From the landing, he softly whispered, See you at 1.20pm, 120 120 PM, my, my love. And the last thing she saw was a lover waving goodbye. It began as a normal day, It ended with her world destroyed. And it was all in the name of love and spite. From 1907 onwards, Alan James Grierson had a blessed upbringing. Born in Shirley, on the north side of Southampton, he was raised in a spacious penthouse flat, at 12 Brunswick Terrace, overlooking East Park. As a son of Hugh, a prominent solicitor, and Emma, a solicitor's wife, Alan was the youngest of two, whose every whim was catered for by Lucy, a living servant. As a privileged boy, he was never without, except maybe for love. Little is known about his upbringing, so it's uncertain whether he was ruled with an iron rod, pampered like a preening prince, or was mollycoddled with too much love and not enough oxygen. Undeniably, he'd been raised to be well-mannered, cultured and polite. And yet he was also a spoiled little brat. Growing up, Alan easily fitted the mould of a 1920s middle-class gent, dressed in dark smart suits, bright ties and adopting the slicked-back hair and the horn-rimmed glasses of the silent movie star Harold Lloyd. Alan had the smooth pale skin of a man who had never done a day's hard work in his life, and the plummy voice and slow deliberate gait of a man of leisure who hadn't to worry in the world. Alan cared for no one but himself. From a young age he stole from his own home to fund his lifestyle. Everything he did was about his wants, his needs and he didn't care who got hurt in his quest for cash. With no history of criminality, sickness or insanity in the family he was only injured twice in his life. Aged eight he was briefly knocked unconscious by a cricket ball. And aged 18, he fell off a motorbike and ended up with a two-inch scar to his skull. Since then, he felt perfectly fine, with no ill effects. But what would make a well-mannered boy from a good home and a private school? go bad age 19 having been released from prison for a string of petty thefts on the 23rd of June 1927 his father packed his only son off on board of the SS Bull, a passenger ship bound from Melbourne, Australia. with a small allowance to set up this family embarrassment as far away as possible. Alan arrived all alone, having been banished to an unfamiliar land. It could have been the fresh start that he needed, only being too lazy to work and too greedy to go straight. After another string of offences, on the 11th of April 1930, Allen was convicted of four cases of fraud, and he was sentenced to 4 years in prison. Released again in 1934, and with no plans to do the decent thing or to think of anyone else but himself, he sailed back to Britain, hunkered down in a lodging, and continued his life of petty crime in London. On the 4th of March 1935, at West London Police Court, 28-year-old Alan Grierson was sentenced to one month in prison for stealing postal orders. Released on the 1st of April, once again he was back where he had begun. He was broke, jobless, homeless and an ex-con out on probation. Born with big dreams, Alan wanted everything his life could offer. A lavish home, a fast car, a full bank account, and a beautiful wife who loved him without question. And yet, through his own selfishness, Alan had nothing. As this petty little thief had been disowned by every loved one he had stolen from. Three weeks later, Alan Grierson would meet Maxine Gann. And yet, their undying love would lead to murder. On Saturday, the 20th of April 1935, Alan and Maxine met for the very first time and fell in love. For him, She was sweet, pretty, petite, and the epitome of the woman of his dreams. For her, he was charming, kind, and handsome. But being naive, she swallowed the story he span about being an ambitious solicitor's son from a good home and avoided the less palatable truth of his past. Across the following months, Constantly kissing, making her laugh, and with her dashing bow, forever wooing her with poetry and a tune on his ukulele, Maxine had fallen for Alan. As Alan struggled to find work, having promised to marry her by her 21st birthday just a few months away, although Maxine was far from wealthy, out of love, she loaned him money, She gave him hope, she praised his ambitions and as he had nowhere to live, she would find him a place to stay. Taking a well-earned holiday in Scotland, Ms Riley, the owner of the top two floors of 19 Gloucester Road, had entrusted her home to her old friend, Louise Gann. Moving in on the 2nd of June, 63-year-old Louise, known as Bertha, was the perfect house-sitter. And feeling a little lonely, rattling around this grand flat, all by herself, she invited Maxine to join her, and later, her daughter's boyfriend. Alan's search for work was always fruitless, a ludicrously long drive up to Manchester to find a job he could acquire in London, followed by a slow drudge back, a whole day wasted and a tank of fuel spent, all funded by yet another loan from Maxine, which he always promised to pay back, but didn't. Alan wanted everything in his dreams, only without the long hours, hard effort or minuscule wage. The answer was staring him in the face. On his first night at 19 Gloucester Road, with Maxine and Louise sharing a bed on the third floor, keen to keep the creeping feet and hanky-panky at bay, Alan had been consigned to Miss Riley's room on the second floor. As a sickening mix of pink lacy chintz, it should have made him wince to bed down amongst this haberdasher's orgasm. But it didn't. It made him drool. Inside a mahogany box lay Miss Riley's jewellery consisting of seven gold rings, two gold watches, and an assortment of gold bracelets, chains, tie pins, pendants, brooches, lockets, and a silver crucifix. They were special to her and cherished. But to him, he didn't think she'd miss one or two. Four days later, a J. Attenborough & Co. at 142 Oxford Street Alan pawned for £5 a gold enamel brooch a diamond and gemstone brooch and a hair diamond and gemstone ring with a seller's slip signed using the name Mr. J. Hoskinson a builder who had given him work when he needed it. £5 was the equivalent of two weeks wage for a man who worked for a living in 1935. As Alan didn't and his windfall made no sense. Louisa went looking, and her eagle eyes spotted the open jewellery box and the missing items, taken from this self-contained flat, with only three people living in it. Feeling shamed, mostly for being caught rather than regretting his actions, Alan sent Maxine and Louise a written apology, begging forgive me, Alan, he enclosed the pawn tickets, as well as Alan's patent-pending, cast-iron promise that he would get the jewellery back. As always, naively Maxine believed him, just as she believed he would pay back the money she had loaned him. And although Louise was not best pleased, as her withering glance would testify, At Maxine's request, he was led back into the house. At a little after midnight on the 10th of June, clutching a little posy for his sweetheart and a box of chocolates for her mum, Alan, who was homeless, skulked back into 19 Gloucester Road with his head hung low. Returning to the pink, chintzy warmth of Miss Riley's room, Alan slept soundly that night. His mission was clear. To apologise to Louise, and to prove his love for Maxine, he would redeem the jewellery. But first, he needed money. On Thursday the 13th of June, having dressed in his one-best suit, Alan returned home with a little something to celebrate. Having aced the interview, as of Monday, he would begin his career as a salesman for H.C. Paul, a respected motor firm at 90-92 Great Portland Street. On a decent salary, With his first week's wage packet in advance, he made a promise to give them one pound each of the seven pounds they had loaned him. And by the Monday, he was as good as his word. Given a fresh start, Maxine saw only the good in Alan. As to Louise, he seemed like he was trying. He left for work at 9am, Mondays to Fridays. And with his wage, he treated his girlfriend like a princess. It all seemed to be going well. Maybe too well. And that's because a spoiled brat will always be a spoiled brat. The gifts were a ruse. The money was stolen. The promise was lost. And the job was a lie. As only a two-bedroomed flat, Alan remained within the temptation of Ms Riley's room. With a mahogany box now locked by Louise, she didn't think for a second that he knew how to break in. But he had. On the 17th of June, he pawned a mix of old gold for £1 at A4 in Victoria. A gold locket for four pound and five shillings at Sanders in Camden Town. A gold diamond and emerald cluster ring for four pound at Wallace Davison Sons WC1. And each time giving a new alias, A. Williamson, Mrs. Rawley, and even Mrs. Gann. But burning through money, like he burned through the truth, Before he knew it, the spoiled brat was broke. Dressed in new suits, quaffing rich foods, and glugging fine wines, his fictional wage simply couldn't cope with his expensive tastes. Up to his eyes in loans, and driving a car he had gained through higher purchase, this was not his greatest expense, as the couple were already perusing wedding shops. Alan wanted it all. His dream was so close he could taste it. But needing a stack of quick cash and an easy way to cover his tracks, as the mahogany box was almost empty, what he needed was a plan and a distraction. On Thursday, the 20th of June, Alan, the kind lad with the good intentions, said he had to drive to the seaside town of Torquay as part of his job and he wanted to treat Maxine and Louise to a weekend by the beach. The weather was great, the heatwave was looming and who wouldn't want to escape a hot city? His plan was simple. Meet the ladies somewhere local like Oxford Circus at a time which meant they'd be at least 30 minutes from home. Using a spare key he had swiped earlier, he'd quickly ransack each room, leave a window or door open as if Louise had made an honest mistake, and meeting them at a time and place he had planned. He would take them both to Torquay, with a loot stashed in his boot. After a lovely weekend of sandcastles and ice cream, all three would return to the flat, And seeing the devastation, he would share their look of shock as everything of value, including the bits he had already pawned, were gone. In Alan's eyes, his burglary would be a work of brilliance. A plan, a distraction, and an alibi. Having got time off work, Maxine was all ready to go but being a decent woman who had promised Miss Riley that she would house at her home. Sixty-three-year-old Louise Berth again declined his offer. And with that, she had unwittingly signed her own death warrant. The morning of Saturday, the 22nd of June, was succeeded by a surprisingly sticky night. As the heat wave had left Louise too tired to get out of bed, so Maxine made her a cup of tea. Excited for the day ahead, a half day's work, followed by a weekend away, Maxine carried a cuppa into her bow who slept in a pink blanket amongst a sea of porcelain cats and a now empty mahogany box. Popping on his horn-rimmed glasses, he cooed, Good morning, morning, Mickey, my sweet. sweet. As the two soon-to-be newlyweds pressed lips and blushed red, only their happiness would come at a great price. At 8.30am, dressed in the uniform, Maxine looked up the stairs to see Alan, wearing his blue suit and red tie for a job which didn't exist, standing on the landing as he softly whispered, see you at one twenty pm, PM my, love. my love. And the last thing she saw was her lover waving goodbye. With Maxine gone and Louise fast asleep, his brilliant plan to burgle the flat would only need a little tweak. It was simple. As long as he was quiet, no one would be any the wiser. But nothing ever goes to plan. being giddy with glee, 20-year-old Maxine Gann waited patiently at Oxford Circus for the man she would marry to whisk her away on a sun-kissed trip for two. But by 1.40pm, as Alan hadn't arrived, she phoned the flat, but got no reply. By 2pm, She arrived back at 19 Gloucester Road to find the main door open, but the flat door locked. Using a neighbour's phone, she called Alan's employer, but no one had heard of him. Growing concerned, at 3pm, she requested the help of Frederick Summers at Bucknell's, and he forced open the door on the second floor landing. The place was in a terrible state. Drawers were open, cupboards were emptied, and everything had been ransacked. Inside the third-floor bedroom, she found a suitcase on the table, which was half-filled with stolen items. Jewelry, silver jugs and a cash box. Anything easily saleable. And beside the door, Dressed in a blue coat and black shoes, as if she was going out, lay her mother. Collapsed and unconscious, a bloodied flat iron lay nearby. This one kilo cast iron weight was matted with
0: her bloodied hair, having been used by the burglar to bash in her skull. Having never regained
1: consciousness. At 9:35 p.m. the next day, Louise Gann died of her injuries.. The investigation was simple. With a history of theft, the pawned items signed for in its handwriting his fingerprints on the stolen items, as well as the flat iron, and having vanished without trace. The police issued Alan's description in the newspapers, and on Sunday the 30th of June, he was apprehended. Being too arrogant to adopt a disguise, while lodging in the home of Mrs. Ellen Church of 8 Beach Road in Weybridge, and using the worst alias ever, that being Ian, Mark Ian, wearing the same suit and staring at a photo of himself, he engaged in a conversation about himself and the murder he was wanted for. Tried at the Old Bailey on the 10th of September 1935, having deliberated for 25 minutes, the jury found him guilty everyone had accepted it as a fact. Everyone, except Maxine, who was so blinded by her love for the man who had bludgeoned to death her own mother, that she wrote him love letters in prison. She set up a petition to pardon him, and having taken his hand in marriage, she had agreed to be his wife. They were due to marry on the 30th of October, 1935, the day of her 21st birthday. But with his reprieve being denied, at 9am, he was hung by the neck at Pentonville Prison. Dressed in black, when his death was announced, she placed a bouquet of violets at the prison gates, with a note which read, To my Alan, from Maxine. Alan Grierson was buried in Pentonville prison. Two years later, gripped with an uncontrollable grief, Maxine took her own life, having died by suicide. And it was all for the love of a spoiled brat. i'm gonna kill someone today oh for fuck's sake oh that wanker behind oh really gonna kill someone started off nicely gonna take your little half started off as a nice little recording i thought yeah this is gonna go well oh, someone opposite me has got an angle grinder out today Wanker behind me has decided to get his lawnmower out, even though it's been raining for five days and the ground is boggy. He decided he needs to get his lawnmower out. The wankers in the helicopters are coming past every six seconds, going, "Oh, my helicopter!" oh Even though, oh, all oh my my eight million pound helicopter, oh, got a great helicopter. I'm going to fly into my meeting, even though, and even though it's eight million pounds and it's got its own GPS. I'm not going to use GPS. I'm just going to follow the canal towpath. Oh. Listen. Wanker stopped. Wanker stopped with its fucking noise, oh, fucking shitty lawnmower, fucking wanker. Oh, we you as and there was a dog outside having a good old bark as well. Oh, fucking typical. Look at that. Second, I stopped. Wanker stopped. Oh my god. I'm, I'm still going to kill him. I'm still going to kill him. Oh. Unfortunately. See, that's, that's the thing. With these people who have these posh podcasts and they can go into studios, that's fine. You, it's all protected and you can put up. Your, but this is my front room. This is I've got to cope with what I, the equipment I've got and it's kind of limited. So you've got to put up with this shit. Oh, Anyway, anyway, what's nice? Something nice happened today. I've got a little robin that comes to my uh, the, the bow of my boat every morning at about 10 o'clock. He swoops in. I've left some kind of uh, things for him, things that Robin's like. And it's nice. He comes in. He flies in at the front bit. And he goes, chip, chip, And he stands there and he looks at me. And he's, because it's winter, he's got his little, his red frontage. And then he, he grabs the bread and he goes, chip, chip, chip. And then he flies off again. That's nice. That's nicer than that. Fucking wanker with his fucking shitty lawnmower. Fucking wanker. Oh, dear God. Oh. Well, anyway, I'm going to re-listen to this uh, recording later on and see if it's acceptable. I I had one whole episode where someone decided to pull out an angle grinder next to the boat, and he was... (laughs) And then he'd stop for 30 seconds. And I'd go... So I'd I'd try and record in between the gaps of him not getting his fucking angle grinder. Oh, I'm really angry. Not getting his angle grinder out. And then... As I started doing this bit, he entirely stopped. He went away on lunch, so I had to redo everything. So I'm going to check that this audio. Hopefully, this will be okay. I've put pillows over my windows. Uh, I put my little sound muffler on. I'm going to do some little tweakery with it with the uh, 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 the software on my edit suite. So we'll will hopefully it'll be okay. So I don't want to have to redo all that. Oh, that's a pig to do. Um, do I want a cup of tea? I can't be asked i've had to, oh i've got hiccups now i got five this morning oh but i do have i, I bought a Belgian bun yesterday a nice little coffee shop uh, a bakery up the road really good Belgian buns and the cafe next door does really really good hot chocolate really nice and do you know what they're not even bothered by me walking in there and setting up two laptops and my ipad and my phone and all everything i need to charge they don't they don't mind that they're all right with that so uh do you know i'm happy to go in there i'll do that do that in a bit so that'll be good oh right uh what else is going on just powering ahead really just trying to keep busy get ahead of schedule um that's it really i'm hoping i'm hoping to have everything done all the episodes done ready for christmas so this one i've i think this one is december the 1st i should have everything done by then i should i should be done so the plan is to get some time back as long as there's no more people fucking oh, law mowing in november oh um hopefully i can power through go to the archives do because i've been sneaking into the archives whenever possible to do some extra stuff to get myself ready for next year so might do a little bit more than that and then uh and then be you know take some time off for christmas that'll be good annoying helicopter going past <coughs> uh a thank you to new patron supporters uh they are james mothy marks uh francis mccree and carla um so thank you for james francis and carla thank you for becoming patron subscribers it's very much appreciated uh hopefully you were lured in by the, uh the the promise of uh the the weekly inch which is now going out on uh in patreon it was a daily inch on thing it's entirely new episodes so it's not ones you've heard before they're all entirely new and it kills me but i do one every week but depending on which tier you're on you get uh different um uh, different ones still no no mowing utter wanker utter wanker 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 Ah. Oh. Uh, um uh, thank you to uh people who've donated to the podcast to uh help keep it going that's much appreciated so thank you to jimmy who uh subscribed via the um the Motor mile podcast there's a little donate button there and dali i don't know whether that's salvador dali i doubt it i think he's dead uh hopefully the, you're not dead that's, that's a weird thing to say uh who's uh support donated via the supporter link so thank you to both of you that's very much appreciated i'm going to dive into some uh quiz questions now still no more oh really frustrating uh i'm uh, gonna dive into those now don't forget i haven't edited the episode yet so they may get uh removed but let's see how many you get and then we're going to dive into a lot of stuff to do with this case so get ready <gasps> question number one what was alan's middle name question number two in what part of southampton was alan born Question number three, there were three other tenants at 19 Gloucester Road, but what did they do as jobs? Question number four, what did Maxine do as a job? Uh, Question number five, how uh, was Alan injured age eight? Question number six, what city in Australia was Alan booted off to? Uh, question number seven how did i describe the decor in ms riley's bedroom question number eight an easy one what did alan's dad do as a job in fact it's so easy i haven't even written the answer here Um, question number nine what was the name of the car dealership alan was supposedly a salesman at there's a kook in the background and question number 10, who broke down the door at the flat? Right, we'll do the answers to those very shortly. Right, let's dive into some uh, stuff. Um, I think what I, I, something quite often what I do is I uh, I get all the information together. I go through the archives. I grab the police file, the court records, and I piece it all together. And the idea at the very start is I don't approach it knowing what story I'm going to tell. What I do is get as much information as I can, and then I let... I'll go through the data and just see what there is and what the story where it's kind of guiding me um there was a lot of information about this case in the court records about all the details about all the things that were stolen and stuff like that and the timings and where people were at different points but as i started write, writing it i decided i wanted to write a story about a brat about a spoilt little brat so the kind of the a lot of the information in the case kind of became redundant when i realized that so uh we can dive into it here so the investigation was headed up by divisional detective inspector leonard burt um when he got into the house he saw uh, by the bedroom door there was a large quantity of congealed blood on the floor so it's the uh third floor third floor if you're on patreon you'll see the the planogram of this there's uh, a bedroom uh, they've got a little kitchen next door they've got a sitting room and they've got a bathroom and then downstairs on the second floor is where miss riley's bedroom was um there was um blood staining on the 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 door jamb so on the entrance to the bedroom and that was between uh four foot seven and four foot eleven inches height which is the same height as louise again so uh uh, maxine's mum so clearly she had see because he never gave a witness statement i went searching for alan's witness statement and he never gave any he just professed his innocent innocence, innocence out. So we don't know what he did or we don't really know what happened she was clearly asleep at some point maxine left he was still in the house that morning he stayed there waving her goodbye as we've seen we don't know what happened whether he was creeping around the house um trying to rob it and she disturb him i think that's the most likely outcome for this but we just don't know but clearly at one point she was asleep. She woke up. She got dressed. She was on her way out. So it's likely that he was probably downstairs uh, in in Miss Riley's bedroom stealing stuff. And then he came upstairs to steal stuff. And she... See, that's the question, is where she was at that point. Because she was clearly... Uh, whether he went into the room and attacked her in the room so he could get in there, we don't know. We just don't know what happened. But there were... Uh, Outside of the door there were small, six small pear-shaped splashes of blood, a large smear of blood three or four inches in diameter at the bottom of the door that's where she fell. The flat iron, which was used for ironing, that was inside uh the third floor, which is where the kitchen was, so it was found on the washing board in there. Um bedroom was in a state of repair. As mentioned, all the cl- all the drawers were open, uh things had been stolen. He'd clearly got the brown suitcase, which was um Louisa's he got that, he'd opened it up. He'd started to fill it full of things. He'd got a handbag in there, he'd got all the different things that he found, like uh, all the s- silver jugs, bowl, a uh, g- g- silver cup, uh, lots of different parts jewelry, silver plates, you know, all the things that he could sell. He was putting them into the suitcase uh, so he could put them in his car and take them away, which was obviously what his original plan was going to be. But we don't know why he left it there. We don't know why he fled at that moment. That's what makes things uh, interesting and weird it's uh did he murder her first or was or was he upstairs stealing stuff and then she found it but where was she at that point this is what we don't know where or maybe maybe because uh don't forget louise uh maxine didn't find her mom until much l- later and the police never really because she didn't die until the next day we don't know what time she was attacked which makes things difficult the witnesses saw nothing they heard nothing so we don't have a timing for this so maybe he was still in the flat making up a p- cup of tea maybe she woke up put some clothes on and was like oh i'm going to go out and uh do something Uh, do some shopping or something maybe he thought oh brilliant that's a great opportunity for him to steal stuff although that would have been a terrible opportunity for him because he would she would have seen him as the only person in the house so we just don't know what's going on um the uh there was a shopping bag found on the second floor uh and a key which fitted the bedroom uh for that landing as well so we'd clearly stolen that but we don't we could never they could never find the key which gave him access to the so we don't know whether he did actually steal it or, or really what was going on it's a really really confusing thing to do uh, the flat iron uh, had was found on the draining board in the kitchen it had blood stains on it and hair stuck to it uh, dr lyons uh, said the hair was similar to mrs gans this is in an era where they really couldn't prove exactly where the hair came from but he said the, the color matched hers uh when the police went around they were able to find all of the things that had been stolen and in all of the uh pawn shops that he'd taken to so we've got a list of those um as it, i've pretty much i've mentioned all of them in the episode so i'm not going to go through them again but you can you can see that he did it on the 7th he did it on the 17th so all of those in the episode but also on the 22nd so on the day that Uh, he committed the burglary slash murder at Frederick Barry on German Street, just off Piccadilly, he sold a condiment set in a leather case uh, using the name AJ Williamson again, Uh, it was later sold to a customer so they were unable to retrieve it unfortunately Um, the mother lasted she never recovered, Uh, she remained unconscious um, and she died at 9.35pm the next day at uh, St Pancras Hospital autopsy conducted by sir bernard Spilsbury. um he said there were three acts of violence committed uh, to inflict the head wounds um so there were in total there were two fractures to the head but he said there was one which was uh, i think it's to the front of the yeah an abrasion to the left of the eye um so he was unsure whether that was um her being punched or where she fell on the ground he said there was a bruise on the top of the right shoulder uh so there's a potential that that's either where she fell or where he may have uh kneeled on top of her to keep her down but she uh she was hit twice over the head with the flat iron um causing uh, an extensive uh brain hemorrhage uh fractures to the skull and a brain hemorrhage uh she wouldn't have recovered from that especially in that era as well uh so there she lay and she bled to death. Um investigation was quite simple. They called up uh, Frederick Cheryl, the head of the uh, fingerprint lab at Scotland Yard. He turned up and Alan's fingerprints were everywhere. And his fingerprints were at the top of everything. So that means he was the last person to touch touch these items. So the cash box that was found, which had taken from the wardrobe, that had his fingerprints on it, um the suitcase had his fingerprints on it um everything in miss riley's room the jewelry box uh all the things they found at the pawnbroker's, ha- also had partial fingerprints of his on there um he had taken his suit to the dry cleaners and had it cleaned but there were still traces of blood on it um i didn't put this in the episode it was something i wanted to do but i didn't i felt it kind of slowed stuff down at that moment so um alan was meant to meet up with maxine at oxford circus which he didn't do um obviously because his plan was really to do the burglary and then to kind of uh get in the car bugger off have the things hidden away and then sell it off when he needs to then come back and go oh my god the house has been burgled but because he'd murdered her mother it kind of makes it a really difficult situation for him Uh, so he fled he just took the stuff and fled even though even though he loved this woman apparently he murdered her mother and then fled um so the police pretty much knew that it was him all of all of the evidence says that it was him uh so they put his photograph in the papers uh and it went out across monday the 24th but also the 29th and 30th um because it was posted outside of all of police stations um and Someone had said that they'd seen him get into a six wheel lorry in Darlington on the 26th. We're unsure if that's right. Others had cited him in Guildford, uh, uh, heading towards Brighton and Worthing, which is most likely to be him. Uh, they put his photo, but also a full description of him in the papers and what he'd done and what he was like. And um, so that uh, all the docks were being watched, all the police stations, pretty much everything. So they'd really put out a, a full scale search in order to find him. Uh, over quite a few days as well but so he was hiding out for a bit he'd spent a little while in a tent Uh, he was camped in aldershot which is where he said he was uh and he was trying to find work and get lodgings and things like that as mentioned uh there was a widower uh, a widow called uh, mrs ellen church at eight beach road in weybridge she was letting out rooms Uh, she let out one to him on the 28th uh for one shilling and two pence per night um as mentioned in the episode, he used uh his the alias Ian McEan. There you go. You couldn't couldn't have made up a worse nick a worse alias than that. What's your name? Ian. Surname? Uh uh Ian McEan. Uh are you Scottish? Yeah. <laughs> I mean what a twat. What an absolute twat. Um so anyway, um, on Friday the twenty eighth, Ellen and her neighbour uh were uh sitting down together, they were reading the newspaper, um and in there was the article. It had it was all about that how they were trying to find this guy, and he got Alan's picture in there, and even Alan said like the the neighbour said, uh uh Uh, what did he uh, say the name was and alan said uh grierson alan grierson meaning the person in the paper but that was him so um they recognized it was him they didn't kind of make him aware of it at that point and by the sunday the 30th they called the police uh he was found still wearing the blue suit um he's in the house hang on this is the bit i wanted to get to he was in the house the police turned up uh, police saw him and said uh are you uh alan grierson he he lied at them. a moment he said i'm ian McEan. um it, it, he said I've, I've been traveling for 18 months i don't know who this uh alan is and they looked at the picture they said come on it is you and he was like yeah okay it is me that's fine um before I get taken to the police station, he said, uh, "Would you?" His exact words: "May I go upstairs and put on my collar and tie?" Because this is the nineteen thirties, and obviously, obviously, a man always wears collar and tie. So they said, "Yeah, of course, that's fine." So he went upstairs uh, into his room to put on his collar and tie. The police were a little bit concerned. They went upstairs and they caught him trying to trying to climb out the window like a twat. And then he said, "I'm sorry. I've I've been really serious, silly. I mean, didn't mean to do anything wrong." Um, he he did actually say that he was trying to see if there was something wrong with the roof. Of course, there wasn't anything wrong with the roof. Uh, and he was arrested that day, taken to Weybridge Police Station, and eventually the uh, uh, police from uh, Scotland Yard came down and picked him up. Uh, he was remanded at Brixton Prison. He didn't really give a much of a history of his, his past. It, it's weird, he doesn't seem to want to talk that much about it. So... Um yeah we don't which is why we don't really know that much about it uh but yeah yeah he had a little cut to his scalp no signs of fractures uh he 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 seemed rational uh, he seemed very controlled um he didn't they, they said he didn't seem like an, a massive nut job uh, and he was declared fit to stand trial oh a burpees um his committal was on the 2nd of july 9 uh 2nd of july uh at malibone police court uh where was it um uh he was apparently distressed shaking and asked for water and a cigarette he buried his head in his hands looked up and said isn't it funny the pain and suffering one person can make for others um annoying barking dog again just barks at everything just i think he's just bored i think because he's out all day their no owners don't seem to give a shit they just dump him out all day rain or shine he's just out and he's bored uh so yep tried at the old Bailey. it was like an eight day trial in total um before mr justice plot porter he pleaded not guilty to the charge of murdering uh, louise gan but was found guilty and sentenced to be hanged um Was pretty much all the evidence was there they they didn't have to do much of an investigation they just in court they pretty much just had to go through all all the evidence that they have to prove it was him but it was pretty much there was nothing there to state Uh, he couldn't provide any evidence to state it wasn't him at all he couldn't prove where he was Uh, he, he couldn't you know everything was just a mess uh he said i can only further protest my innocence i think that is all uh, he gave evidence pleading his innocence and stating i have never struck a woman in my life nobody bludgeoned one to death uh he appealed his sentence on the 14th of october 1935 uh, his appeal was dismissed on the grounds uh that the verdict against him and the weight of the evidence um uh, pretty much it was very quickly dismissed uh, as mentioned he was executed at pentonville prison at 9 a.m Um, There was no uh, last-minute reprieve, although the Home Secretary had received a petition with uh, 20,000 signatures on it. This is predominantly by people who were against the death penalty, not people who believed in his innocence. Uh, So what would have happened is he was still guilty, but they would have just... Lawnmower wankers back. Utter wanker. Uh, it, It would have just been reduced to life sentence. Um what else is there yeah maxine uh yeah i I, I haven't been able to get hold of her death certificate i've I've got the details but it doesn't say what but she she died two years later so the autumn pretty much around the time of her birthday 1937 uh i've got details which suggested it was suicide but we're not entirely too sure but yet at the time of his execution she waited outside in a car it was announced after 9 a.m that he'd been uh hung and they said she was all dressed in black with a veil she looked fragile she was clutching a gold cross around her neck uh, and a bouquet of violets which she placed at the gates of pentonville with a little note uh, and after that pff, hear how annoying that is that's not even half of it i don't uh, the car that she was in took her to a Roman Catholic cemetery where her mother was buried, and she placed flowers on that grave too um in court in uh, when he was in prison um she, they kept sending each other kind of love letters uh This was kind of the last one that uh he sent her. It says "Darling girl, you wonderful little i 've abbreviated it because it was pages long, darling girl, you wonderful little woman." i'm sure everyone's loving that you wonderful little woman you great-hearted g- girl child he sounds like a pedo uh my love uh now mickey as uh, as this is our last au revoir i will break down one or two barriers knowing there will be no opening of wounds but my last message to you of healing and so i love you my sweetheart with all with limitless boundless love uh an unsweeping clean love Comradeship, so talk shit, comradeship, passion, all things that can make two people one is in me. Dear heart, but I left out God. Um we have lost uh, and yet we have won, uh, for we have found great spiritual love and when our bodies are mere clay, this love will endure. Uh this is our reward. Little one of mine, I am brave. Do you be also? do you be also twat uh for courage is for courage is our courage never fear or doubt god is with me mm, i doubt it uh, and i shall pass quietly mm, i doubt it uh my mickey my darling little sweetheart child i love you anyone who calls their wife a child it's just like you might as well just call yourself a pedo uh i love you until we meet yours alan so there you go there you go Uh, uh, witnesses in the house uh, heard nothing they they were they were in that day they heard nothing at all so um we've got we don't really know a lot of what was going on oh still that lawnmower is going i know some people will be listening to this going why don't you just move your boat why don't you just move your boat because this is the problem with being on a boat (laughs) you, you can you get like here has been peaceful utterly peaceful for the last week utterly peaceful and then wanker has to start doing his moan today at this second has to start doing it now if i move it down there it'll be perfect and then i'll move somewhere and it'll all be noisy again it's always the same so i'm going to i'm going to listen to this afterwards if it sounds okay if i can edit through it i'll do it if not i'll just have to redo it and then i'll go and strangle the wanker oh Right, let's do the quiz questions. Oh, PCAG, can't, can't we arrest him for being a noisy prank? Oh. Uh, question number one. What was Alan's middle name? It was James. Question number two. In what part of Southampton was Alan born? He was born in Shirley. Question number three. There were three other tenants at 19 Gloucester Road. But what did they do as jobs? John Moody was a stage manager. Uh, Gillian Pyle was an artist. And Dorothy Riley, Ms. Riley, was a single woman of independent means. Uh, question number four What did Maxine do as a job? She was a shop assistant. Question number five How was Alan injured age eight? Uh, he was hit in the head with a cricket ball. Question six. What city in Australia was Alan booted off to? Melbourne. Question seven. How did I describe the decor in Miss Riley's bedroom? As a haberdasher's orgasm. Question number eight. An easy one. What did Alan's dad do as a job? He was a solicitor. Question number nine, what was the name of the car dealership uh, Alan was supposedly a salesman at? It was H.C. Paul. And question number ten, who broke down the door at the flat? It was Frederick Summers of Bucknells. So there you go. <sighs> this is going to be a fuck to edit. Anyway, let's go and do it. What time is it? quarter past one i'm gonna eat my belgian bun i'm gonna to go to the coffee shop i'm gonna power through this get it done so thank you everyone for supporting murder Mile. Uh, next week a single episode then we'll uh, end on a uh, double episode a double parter um and maybe maybe there might be a little something for christmas but nothing for <sighs> lawnmower wanker <sighs> you're gonna die anyway <laughs> have yourself have yourself fun folks oh life um stay safe be good uh lots of love
0: bye bye but not the lawnmower wanker
1: Bye bye
0: planning for your next trip